Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. Today, we are joined by a repeat guest on the show, Dr. Mike Schumer, Roosevelt Waterfowl Ecologist at State University of New York in the College of Environmental Science and Forestry. Mike, did I get all that right? Yeah, you did. It's a very long name, and thanks for having me back. Yeah, I think this is probably about the third or maybe even the fourth time we've had you on. You've you've been very gracious in joining us here in the past year. We wanted to talk about some of your work on looking at patterns of how weather influences duck migrations. We actually, I think the first time you were one of our one of our guests early on in this in this entire podcast thing, and we had a couple of episodes maybe where we went into a fair bit of detail about the research that you use to produce some of the, to, to look for and identify some of those patterns uh, behind the weather and duck migration. And so we, what I might do here at the beginning is to give you an opportunity to just kind of briefly at a high level recap some of that. But I do want to encourage people to go back through our archives, look for those past episodes with Dr. Mike Schumer and and kind of educate yourself on what he has learned and, and what we've all learned from, from that work. But but then what we'll do is get you to, as we've done on some of those previous epi- episodes, share some insights on sort of what you're seeing based on these major climatological drivers. And, you know, we'll talk about a few other things along the way. Uh, but before we get into all that exciting weather and duck migration stuff, you're there in New York, the sort of the upper end of the U.S. portion of the Atlantic Flyway. And we've gotten requests from some of our listeners for more content, more reports from the Atlantic Flyway. And so I wanted to see if you could give us, uh, here we are in sort of mid-late October. I think today is the is the 18th or 19th maybe of October. So I wanted to see if you could give us a sort of early season report on what you've seen with regard to waterfowl, uh, waterfowl movements, what are habitat conditions like in your area, and have you been able to get out and do any hunting yet? Yeah, thanks, Mike. I think that, you know, we had a pretty good... Uh, production year in general in the Northeast U.S. and in Eastern Canada. You know, a, a lot of water is kind of the right time um, for for helping you know ducklings along and, and producing producing ducks out here. We don't we don't think about this as boomer bust like we do the prairies, but I think the water um, still matters. We were we were pretty warm in the spring, right? Cold cold wet springs really affect uh, duckling survival, um, but we had a, we had uh, pretty warm conditions, and then we had good, almost record wet conditions uh, in parts of the east throughout uh, the summer that produced a lot of good brood habitat. And so, what we're seeing now, and what what hunters are generally reporting, are are fairly good numbers of birds. Uh, a little problematic. I mean, our opening day right near my house uh, in central New York here was last Saturday, and there were it was thunderstorms and rain and about seventy five degrees. Right. So we have been warm. Um, but the initial movements of these birds really aren't based a lot on uh, temperature and such. It will become increasingly about temperature and snow as the season goes on. But those early season movements are birds moving out of their production areas where they're not going to stay and moving into you know high food resource areas so they can bulk up for for the migration. Um, so reports from you know from folks are they're seeing good numbers of birds. The flights are a little slow because you know temperatures don't make 
you know, 75 degrees don't make birds do a lot of things other than sit around. Thank you for that, Mike. What about your own personal opportunities to get out yet? I, I know it, we're still very early um, and, and right there around your house, you, you said it's going to open up this weekend, but did you get out in some, any of the other zones prior to this? And if so, uh, did you have any luck? Yeah, so I did sneak out to the northern zone of New York, uh, which opened I think, a couple weekends ago now. You know, embarrassingly, I've, I've been is a professor with, with a bunch of students and a lot of research going on on, on various topics in the Atlantic Flyway. Uh, my schedule's been really tight, but I, I did sneak out for a hunt, um, found a, had a nice, really nice private wetland and uh, probably about 200 birds on it, uh, through, you know, paddled in with a dog, um, threw, threw decoys out, could hear some birds flushing. And didn't think too much about disturbing them with it being opening day and they don't know what's going on too much. But lo and behold, the sun came up and uh, it was a ghost town. It was a roost marsh. So, so I, picked up a, I picked up a Drake wood duck uh, and a Drake mallard. And, and that, was, that was kind of the morning. I actually only had a few hours. Um, I had to get back into the office to, to button some stuff up. So, but I did hear uh, local wildlife management area near me uh, a lot of good shooting and, and sounds like success up there was, was pretty high. So folks, folks I think, are, are, are doing well. Um, I think something that was really, is really encouraging is that it seems like numbers of duck hunters are way up. Um, what's a little discouraging from folks is uh, some, you know, just high densities of hunter, hunters on top of hunters types of things on public land right now. Um, but it's good to know that there's, you know, that, that there's a lot of people keen to get out and an interest in, in waterfowling in general. It was definitely noticeable from the, the volleys I was hearing. Being a professor of waterfowl ecology and kind of staying up to speed on everything that's going on in the waterfowl management community on a, on a continual basis, you will be acutely aware of the drought that gripped the, the, the U.S. and Canadian prairies this year. We've talked a lot about that. We have kind of, we don't have breeding population surveys, right? Two years in a row, we're lacking those. But it doesn't take rocket scientists at this stage of the game to kind of figure out that uh, and to project that the severity of the drought this year is going to mean that there was not very much production um, of, of young birds this year. So that that is kind of creating uh, a situation where it's going to be tough sledding to begin with, you know, for hunters in the central and Mississippi flyway. And of course that the prairie breeding grounds do feed some birds into the Atlantic flyway as well. So there's going to be a little bit of that felt over there. And it's not, not so much in terms of, you know, a dramatic reduction in the adult population of birds or anything of that nature. That's not the way the drought operates. It really just crushes the, the production for a given year. So you're not going to have a lot of young birds in the population coming south. So it's already... It's already setting up to be a, a tough year for hunters, we think, and early reports kind of bear that out in some of the some of the places that we've we've heard from. So, you know, you have you've done a lot of work studying effects of weather on waterfowl migration, and that's one of the other you know key determinants of whether or not hunters are successful out in the field is how bird how how birds are moving around, how the weather is forcing them to um, to spend more energy to stay warm or look for new food resources. You've kind of already referenced some of this when it's 75 degrees, they're not burning a whole lot of calories, so there's not a great, great need to, uh, to go out and, and find food resources. So I guess here to maybe offer a bit of a transition to talking about um, some of your work, kind of at, at a high level, 
remind people, remind us of some of the research that you've conducted and what you found with regard to that other key component, you know, movement of birds, migration of birds, and what you found with regard to the role that these different weather patterns, I shouldn't say weather patterns, but, you know, weather variables, snow cover, temperature, how those play in, in affecting bird migrations. Yeah, thanks. This, this is really my, my passion when it comes to research is understanding how weather is influencing duck migration and, and waterfall migration in general. Also, you know, also geese, which we're we're getting into with a, a new PhD student we have right now. Um, but the you know the the impetus of this was was really that it seemed like ducks weren't showing up at southern latitudes. That was the the word from the marsh from everybody, right? So we just wanted to put some numbers to it, and so we just matched up a bunch of different types of weather data with uh, waterfall counts throughout the Atlantic Flyway and Mississippi Flyway largely. Now we're working in the, with some Central Flyway data with the state of Kansas to to build this information out a little bit more. But what we did was just looked at different combinations of data that, as a hunter, you would think would cause ducks to migrate, and then found the best relationships between the movement of birds um, and these different weather metrics. And we found that, you know, stuff that you would expect, right? We actually put numbers to it, and then we're able to calculate out um, in the past how that, that weather that causes duck migration had or had not changed, and then using climate change scenarios, predict that stuff out into the future. And what we found was that it was it was pretty much you know how cold is it um, over uh, between two survey periods right if if a biologist went out and counted ducks how cold was it between those two periods how many days in a row was it below freezing how much uh, snow was on the ground and how many days had there at least been measurable snow that would interfere with with field feeding and this this kind of what we call a, a weather severity index uh, for duck migration um, continues to show up as is the best predictor of, of bird movement through time. And so, Mike, when you look at different data sets from different regions, does that same, do those same variables come up? You know, so if you look at these independent data sets as a way to kind of validate the type of patterns, the type of processes that are operating, do, does it pretty well hold or are there any, any major deviations from some of the different data sets you've looked at? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, we started with Missouri data because the Missouri Department of Conservation with the amount of, um, the, you know, the tax, that they, the environmental tax or whatever you want to call it that they have, you know, a, amazing workforce and they've got these great surveys. They've got wonderful, you know, they're dedicated funding to waterfall conservation areas that are well managed. And so they've got just, they had a really nice um, data set for us to work with. So we started with that, but then we expanded, you know, and we found these patterns I'm talking about now, but then we expanded out to areas throughout the Atlantic Flyway and up and down the Mississippi River. Um, and the, the curve, you know, the curve of that relationship changed a little bit, but the drivers of it really didn't. But the one thing I do want to highlight is, you know, we're explaining about 40 to 50 percent of kind of that variation in numbers of, of ducks that would move on any occasion. So there's other things, right? And everybody knows that. Um, but I think the biggest point, like what one thing I always come up with is, that, you know, it doesn't matter how much habitat you have on the ground. If it's frozen and there's a foot of snow, um, <laughs> the ducks are gone, right? right. <laughs> so, so there's some, you know, there's some real ultimate points to this. It's that trickle of birds before that, that big snow that I think people really like to talk about. Yeah, for sure. Let's transition here a little bit and talk about uh, some of the forecasting that you do based on this background research you've conducted and the understanding of these relationships between major duck migration movements and, and weather patterns. And then, you know, you can kind of go up and you reference this, alluded to this already. If you look at the relationship between some of these sort of shorter 
scale, the uh, shorter time frame, weather patterns, and then some of the major climatological drivers, these larger climate cycles or climate processes, you can begin to do what it was you talked about, sort of project out into the future, whether we're talking under various climate scenarios out, you know, into the years, looking at general patterns that we might observe, or if we're looking at more short-term monthly or weekly sort of forecasts based on what you're seeing. And I know you've done uh, a great deal of that in the past on an annual basis, offering these sort of early season and then late season forecasts based on what you're observing with regard to these major climate, um, I don't know what you would call them. What would you call these, like the La Nina, the the North Atlantic Oscillation? What's the proper term for those? No, I mean, they're, they're you know, seasonal climate systems or people, you know, a climatologist call them teleconnection, okay. right? which is, you know, it's a, it's a very technical term for the weather in one part of the world affecting the weather and another, largely through low and high pressure systems. Okay. So teleconnections, I can use that term then? And feel free to, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so these are teleconnections. So you used your understanding of that to make these sort of seasonal projections. And that's kind of where we are now in, in our conversation in this time of year. It's, uh, typically, this is about the time of year that you make that that early season sort of projection based on what you're seeing from these teleconnections. So, um, and then we'll kind of get into sort of an update on what, what the future may hold for any, any additional forecast of this nature for the remainder of this year. I know you have some things to talk about there. But what are you seeing? Like, let, let's talk about La Nina. I know there's a La Nina developing. Let's talk also about the, that North Atlantic Oscillation if it comes into play. But what are those types of things pointing to in terms of early season weather that we might uh, we might anticipate? And again, I'm not going to hold you to any of this. We all know weather uh, meteorologists can be right 50% of the time and they're perfectly employed. So um, <laughs> I kind of say that in jest. But anyway, not holding you to anything, but based on your studying, what are we kind of seeing out there with some of these um, these these major systems. Yeah, so like over the years, I've and I, you know I have published with these folks that do these long-term seasonal forecasts, right? And so they look at at patterns in other parts of the of the world and how that affects. And largely, this is is it's not based on hey we want to know where the ducks are. It's based on how um, you know how affected is New York City and Boston going to be by massive snowfall, right? But these are also the things that drive uh, drive duck migration at different times of the year. So. I've been in communication with these folks, um, these climatologists, for, for for quite a while, and and continue to follow uh, their their work. And it's 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 pretty amazing stuff. I've always wanted to know, you know, if we could, if we before the regulatory cycle of how we set seasons, if we actually knew um, what the year was going to be like, maybe we could set it so that we could provide hunters with the best opportunity instead of either getting froze out or opening a season too early. Um, but but the the La Nina is very likely this year. Okay, and so kind of define that for us for those of us that may have forgotten what that was or may whether it may be a new term to us. Yeah, so that's generally um, cold uh, equatorial ocean patterns right in the Pacific um, that then affect the you know north. It basically affects the jet stream and the moisture that enters North America from the west. And in, for the most part, what happens with a La Nina year, if we have the right low and high pressure system, is that we get cold kind of in the central and Mississippi flyway. We get very wet conditions um, over the Great Lakes. And we might even be surprisingly like a little bit warmer in the, 
in the uh, in the southeast at times. Okay, and so everything is kind of pointing to us going into a La Nina this year. So we can maybe talk a little bit about that. I do have a question: whether you think that would um, whether does a La Nina possibly give us some relief of the prairie drought? And again, you and I have talked about these in the past, and so I know that you can say one thing generally: a La Nina is associated with this, and for a given year, the way the weather patterns unfold may be completely un you know may be completely different from that general pattern, right? So again, nothing right. here is definite. But is there any signal from kind of past observations of La Nina years that might suggest a chance for some uh, recovery of drought conditions in the prairies? That's a good, I, I haven't specifically looked at that, right? Because I'm well, mostly focused on the you know, non-breeding season stuff. Mm-hmm. So um, I do know the general forecast with that La Nina this year, unfortunately, is not for an overwhelming body of evidence for uh, for lots of precipitation in the prairie at this time, yeah. So what other sort of major climate system is out there? I know the polar vortex is something that talked about in the past, and there's a lot of confusion about polar vortex versus polar vortex disruption. You have Mm -hmm. educated me on this multiple times, and I think I finally have it correct. So what about that? What's it looking like? And then kind of anything else, and then kind of package this all together to give us your best assessment of what these things are suggesting relative to the uh, where we are now any, can we is there any cold snap any major development on the um on the horizon well let's let's start with the polar vortex so that this this sticks with you mike and and the rest of the listeners right mm-hmm. think think about the term vortex and you know go flush a toilet and watch it that's yeah. what the polar vortex is at the pole yeah. right it's cold air it's it's pressure system a jet stream that just spins right around the pole and it, and it holds the cold air there. So the term polar vortex is actually, you know, cold air being held at the pole. Um, the polar vortex disruption is when we get, it, 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 you know, the atmosphere is a, a hamburger. You folks have probably heard this on the Weather Channel too. We, we try to think of it in this, you know, one dimension, but, um, you know, it, it's not. And so there's, there's lots of things going on. Um, in the atmosphere. But if you just think about it as low and high pressure systems, when there's very strong low pressure systems and high pressure systems, it makes for this really wobbly jet stream. And at times what you can get, and that, that will cause a polar vortex disruption, which allows cold air blob pour out of that polar, you know, Arctic area into North America, right? And these are the cold shots we want to, to kind of move birds. The current um, thinking is there is almost a hundred percent chance of a polar vortex disruption early in the fall, like early November this year. So the thought is is that that's going to cause a cold, you know, a cold air outbreak pretty early. So get your winter coats out of the closet if you haven't already, right? Right, and then put them back. So here's the problem. <laughs> okay. So what's the other side? What's the other uh, half of this story then? <laughs> the, the flip side of it is that. And, 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 you know, I don't want to get into all the, the nuances of this, and nor am I a climatologist and understand all of them. But the chatter among these folks is that that thing's going to reorganize, and it might be one of the strongest polar vortexes we've, we've, we've seen in, in decades to the point that um, it's going to be, if you go back, if you keep a, a log book of, of duck hunting and have these just dead December, January period, there's a likelihood it's just going to reorganize, be really strong, and we may be in for one of the mildest Decembers and January. And obviously, I'm sticking my neck way out, right? Um, but the good thing is, is, I think that, you know, 
I mean, obviously people should temper expectations given the drought and number of just adults that are out there and smart birds, right? Um, but the birds are at least going to move into mid, I would say they're going to move into mid latitudes um, relatively early and people should be ready for, for migration, you know, in, in that November period, you know, through, through northern to, to mid latitudes uh, and into early December to take advantage of it. So that it, after that, my concern is that it might really, really slow up after that. For, for, for bird movement. Any idea on like time? Are we thinking early November? Are we thinking mid-November or is is that just too uncertain? I realize we're talking about some major, dis, you know, some, mm-hmm. when's the atmosphere going to change? What's the timing on of that? <laughs> but any, uh, can you read anything into what, you're, what you've been studying? The, the early November is the thought right now of when it's going to happen. Okay. Yeah. So not too far away then, and we should begin to see that in some of the long-range forecasts. So that's a little bit to be optimistic about. And, and you know, then once we get beyond that, even if it develops the way you described, maybe we don't get cold temperatures, but as we saw and talked a lot about last year uh, and, and do every year, there are things other than temperature that influence whether bird moves, uh, birds move. If, you know, it, it could be warm and we could get we could get some new rainfall that um, that floods new habitat and that could cause birds to move. And then your success is going to be determined by a whole lot more than just temperature and snow cover. As you've talked about, that's even in your model, that's only your weather severity index is only accounting for about 40% of the variation among those, those movement data. So a lot of other stuff going on out there. And so, you know, what we've said um, what we've said time and time again before is, you know, you, you can't get them if you're on the couch. So you got to get out there and, and make an effort, right? Yeah, exactly. And it, this, this might surprise people, but, you know, we, we, we've gotten it. It's not bragging. It's just reality of what we've had. I mean, we were this growing season in New York um, and, and most of the birds in the Atlantic Flyway come through, you know, come through New York. Uh, we were 127 of 127 wettest growing seasons, basically, right? We were the wettest we've ever been. And the last two days, we had, um, we actually had lake effect rain out of the north, a northwest wind, um, coming across Lake Ontario and the city of Syracuse, the Finger Lakes region had about two days of lake effect rain. And I looked at that pattern and I said, this, this wet that we're supposed to get with the La Nina, this is exactly what we're going to get. And, um, we're, my prediction is we're going to get, you know, this might shock some people, but we're pretty accustomed to it. We're going to get two foot snowfalls. Uh, and then the next day it's going to be 45, 50 degrees in rain. And that's going to create a massive amount of habitat for birds. And those are the types of things that people need to keep their finger on and watch where that water is created and, you know, follow the birds. If you look at, you know, if you just type in uh, USGS water gauges or river gauges into Google, um, not a Google advertisement, and and just pull up that first map and look at how many blue dots are in the blue and black dots are in the east. I mean, um, and even down in the southeast, there's a lot of water out there right now. And so this is, I think this presents, I'm, I'm going to go on a, a, a little side tangent here, Mike, but I think this presents two things. It presents uh, challenges to hunters, opportunities to hunters. That's one thing combined, actually. But then for a, um, an adult population that didn't produce a lot this year out of the prairie, it produces places for those birds to get away and survive. And we have to think about that, too, right? Um, we talk about killing ducks all the time. We like to get out there and shoot ducks, but we got to have places for some of them to get away. And I think the good thing this year, if we had dry in the prairies and dry at the south where those birds were really susceptible to being shot and didn't have places to go, 
that gets a little bit problematic. But I think the good thing is it's a double-edged sword, right? They're going to have good places to go. It's going to ensure that our populations are sustained into the future. It might make it really tough on hunters. So I think hunters should really just temper their expectations. Think about the total experience of, of waterfall hunting on a year like this and, and not focus on, maybe not focus on the numbers as much. I hate to be doom. I don't think it's going to be doom and gloom. It just might, you know, I'm, I'm not, it, none of it looks like we're set up for one of these, um, one of these years where we're just overwhelmed with, with ducks everywhere. Yeah, for sure. And, and to clarify, I, I think we've, we've alluded to this early on, the weather patterns, the migration movements you're talking about, uh, this, we're, we're talking about the central flyway eastward, the Mississippi Atlantic flyway. And, you know, you can extrapolate to some extent into the central flyway with some of the new work that you're doing, but you haven't really, these weather patterns and these movement patterns that we're talking about um, are, are not not, uh, I guess, related so much to the way things shape up in the Pacific Flyway. There's a whole series of different weather systems that, that are at play over there, right? That That's a fair statement, Mike? That, that, that is definitely fair. And I haven't touched it because for, for a couple of reasons, I'm not from there. So it's, um, it's a little foreign to me, the, the bird movement. So even to start to investigate it would be, would be a whole new game. Um, the Pacific West also kind of works a little bit more like you know, in South America, birds move based more on, you know, seasonal rain patterns and they move inland and, you know, towards the coast and, and back into the inland areas to a large degree. I mean, there is north-south migration there, but there's a ton of, um, you know, west to east, uh, sorry, east uh, east to west stuff that goes on there as well. Um, and that weather can be mild, you know, all the way up the coast to, to uh, you know, to Oregon and Washington State without a problem where, that doesn't happen as much in the Atlantic coast. Yeah. This is an interesting year in waterfowl management, waterfowl hunting across North America because of the drought in the prairies, the drought in the Pacific, or uh, yeah, in the Pacific flyway, uh, the, some of what we've been talking about here. Every year is different. Every year has its own set of challenges. Those challenges are not consistent across the geography. They're not con- or across all of North America. They're not consistent throughout winter in any given place. Uh, and if you talk to any seasoned waterfowl hunter, they're going to be able to describe some of their worst years on record. They're going to be able to tell you about the, the good years and the bad years. And you got to have the bad years in order to appreciate the good years. It feels like we've kind of had more than our share of bad years in some, <laughs> some locations here recently. But, you know, it, it is what it is. We've been... We're we're going on about five or six years of kind of declining wetland conditions across major portions of the of the prairie, and we've seen some declines in in duck populations over that time, down from the record highs of about six or seven years ago. Duck populations, um, you know, those that boom that we had a few years ago really is is still uh, benefiting us when we we kind of look at the way things are are shaping up. But uh, yeah, it's it's going to be a it's going to be a tough year, I think, uh, for for some regions and it'll be a year to remember, I, I think, but you know, it's, you got to get out there, you got to hunt them, you got to put in the time. And this is certainly a year, I think when people, as you said, Mike should manage their expectations. They shouldn't throw in the towel. There's still going to be great hunting opportunities on some days and probably one of those years to really um, savor the good days, the good experiences that you have. I know I've seen lots of pictures already of people that have had good success, but I've also talked to people who said they they were skunked on opening weekend and never had that happen before. So, um, so yeah, it, it's going to be one of those years. And Mike, I know in the past you have also generated these weekly migration forecasts, but I think maybe your schedule is getting a little hectic and, and perhaps you're taking a year off from that. Do I understand that correctly? Yeah, it's really unfortunate, um, but I had to make the decision to 
uh, pull the plug on that. Um, I kind of, I kind of try to pretend when people email me, I say, you know, from the weekly duck migration forecast team, but, um, it's, it's largely a team of one and, uh, I just don't really have the, the, the bandwidth this year for it. Um, you know, we're tackling, you know, Eastern, we're doing a lot of Eastern Mallard research, um, to try to figure out what, what's, what's going on with Eastern Mallards. Um, you know, Canada goose seasons of, uh, declined as well. So we're trying to plan some, some Canada goose, um, projects. We're, we're refining our, our duck migration stuff and, you know, collaborating across several flyways on multiple species. We're doing some scoff stuff on Long Island. And, you know, these, these types of positions I'm in aren't uh, a guarantee at university. So, you know, you and I have chatted about this, but we're, we're looking at, at raising several million dollars to endow a position at, um, at, at Syracuse at ESF here to ensure somebody like me exists in the Northeast to, to continue to do this type of work um, to, to, you know, sustain these, these populations of birds and these wetlands they depend on. And all those things just added up to the point that I had to, you know, kind of make a tough decision that, you know, at least for this year, we pulled a plug on it. I've got a PhD student on now that's doing a lot of work with migration. And one of the things I'm looking at doing is kind of upgrading the process and maybe automating it. Um, it might be a pipe dream, but we're going to see what we can get done. And hopefully we'll be back online next year. Well, good deal. Good deal. Yeah, certainly hope to see that in in the future. And hopefully hopefully you get some, well, you will be getting more data. We'll be getting some some updates from revisions to some of those models. And yeah, everything is everything is, is trying to be made more user-friendly and easier to access. So hopefully, uh, hope, hopefully in the process, once you put in the initial work, it'll be easier on the back end for you and you can get that up and running again next year. And I'm sure you and I will continue to be talking about some of those things. And so, um, Mike, I appreciate your time joining us again here on the Ducks Unlimited podcast. You've all, I always love these conversations. Uh, I, I never retain all of the information that you share with us and, and all of the publications that you share with me as well. I've learned a great deal over the, over the years. So I appreciate that. I hope our listeners have their interest peaked a little bit about some of these relationships between weather and then climate systems and how they all kind of factor together among one of many different variables that influence the waterfowl that they see and have an opportunity to harvest during a given year. So, uh, Mike, as always, thanks for joining us here on the Ducks Unlimited podcast, and we look forward to catching up with you again here in the future. Thank you, sir. Shoot great. A special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Dr. Mike Schumer, State University of New York, College of Environmental Science and Forestry. We appreciate his expertise on weather and climate and how it all works together to influence duck migrations and duck movements. As always, we thank our producer, Chris Isaac for the great work that he does getting these podcasts out to you, the listener, and to you, the listener, we thank you for your time and we thank you for your support, passion, and commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, Stay tuned to the ducks.